Let's pray. Holy Spirit, I believe in you. And I'm praying you'd, you'd cause us all to believe in you this morning as we experience a demonstration of your power in the preaching of your word. Would you do what only you are able to do as you've promised? Lord, we want to have open hearts. We want to hear from you. We want to have open hands to what you've said. And Lord, I pray this morning you would use the foolishness of preaching to manifest your glory among us. I'm asking this for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. Please have a seat, please. Well, it's, it's my first time up here in a while, and as many of you know, I'm coming back from a, a time of sabbatical, and there'll be more that I'll perhaps share about that time in the future, but I, I thought it was appropriate for some of my opening words today to reflect on some of that time, and you know, it was at some point this last year that my kids picked up on uh, would-you-rather questions. I think they got this from Awana. I think it's Tim Fair's fault. <laughs> And um, over my recent months of sabbatical, I got to spend a fair bit more time with my family than I, than I typically would, and um, often found myself being subjected to questions of, Dad, would you rather? And there was a question. Now, some of these questions got fairly elaborate and fanciful and detailed, and so one of the things I tried to teach my kids in this time is that a good would-you-rather question should be short, it shouldn't have a lot of detail, and it should really make you think, maybe about some important things. So in the spirit of my sabbatical, I want to ask you a would-you-rather question this morning. Would you rather have everybody else think that you're strong, but actually be weak? Or would you rather have everybody else think that you're weak, but actually be strong. Here's another one for you. Would you rather have everybody else think that you're wise, but actually be a fool? Or would you rather have everybody else think that you're a total fool, but actually, though nobody knows it, be wise? Here's the punchline, which some of you have guessed from the scripture we just read together. Uh, these are not just brain games. You actually need to answer these questions for yourself in real life. The gospel demands that we answer these questions in real life. The gospel makes us choose in real life whether we will look weak and be strong or look strong and be weak whether we will look wise and be a fool or look like a fool but actually be wise. 
And this comes to us this morning from our passage, 1 Corinthians 1.17 to 2.5. This is not in the Psalms. We're going to go back to the Psalms next week. But this is a, this is a passage that I, I really immersed myself in over my sabbatical. This is a message that's been bubbling over in my heart for the last few months. And the elders thought that, that I should preach it today as a way to help us all get ready for another year of ministry together. So we'll get back to the Psalms next Sunday. We're going to start by looking at, at kind of where this comes from, the background, and that's the Corinthian criticism. So the, the, the section that, of Scripture that this comes from is, is 1 Corinthians, but, but specifically 1 Corinthians 1-4, to in which the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry to the Corinthians. And he's defending his ministry because almost as soon as the Apostle Paul left the city of Corinth, some of the Corinthians became started to criticize Paul and criticize his ministry uh, quite viciously. There were other teachers that they liked better than Paul, other people they wanted to follow. And one of their main criticisms of Paul is actually summed up in 2 Corinthians 10.10. See, both 1 and 2 Corinthians are full of this Defense that Paul's giving of himself and his ministry. Second Corinthians 10.10, 10, Paul quotes his critics. They say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Paul was not a great speaker by the standards of the day. And that might surprise you. You might think, man, I, I can't imagine a better preacher than the Apostle Paul. I mean, man, if we could have him as our pastor, that would be awesome. But that's just the problem. See, the people in Paul's day weren't really into preaching. They were used to a much more elaborate form of public speaking that nowadays we call classical rhetoric. Now, I read hundreds of pages about this this summer in, 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 in a wonderful book that I read, and I'm, I'm not going to go on, but, but there's a lot here. Here's the big idea I want to share with you is that we have a lot of material from the ancient world about classical rhetoric. So we know pretty, in pretty thorough detail the kind of thing that Paul was responding to. Classical rhetoric had been being developed for almost 500 years by the time Paul came around. It was an ancient art form. It was highly developed. And it consisted of professionally trained public speakers who used sophisticated language, that's even where the word sophisticated comes from. The teachers of, of rhetoric were called the sophists. Sophisticated language to try to persuade their audiences. And, and history tells us that, that people loved this. And the people of Corinth especially loved this rhetoric, this fancy public speaking. Uh, they treated these famous public speakers the way that we treat movie stars today. So like they would come to town and they would love him and they would build a statue and put it in their library so people could become like him. Becoming one of these public speakers was like the goal for little kids in Corinth. And so for Paul to not be a good public speaker, but just a simple preacher, that was actually a really big deal for them. It was, a, it was a big deal. No wonder some people preferred Apollos. We know from, from the book of Acts that Apollos was, was an eloquent man, unlike Paul. And so by the time that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, the sense that we get is that Paul had become something of an embarrassment to the Corinthians. He was an embarrassment to them. Compared to their public speaking heroes, Paul seemed weak and he seemed foolish 
and he seemed out of date, and they probably felt about him the way, you know, an embarrassed teenager might feel about their middle-aged dad as he picks him up from a party. You know, hey, I'm glad you brought me into the world, but do you mind just waiting in the car, please? (laughs) And so what does Paul do? Well, Paul defends himself. We can talk about that for a little bit. There seems to be this idea we're not supposed to defend ourselves, but, but when the gospel was on the line, Paul was actually pretty willing to defend his ministry. He wanted the Corinthians to know that his weak and foolish ministry was not a problem to him. It shouldn't be a problem to them. Weakness and foolishness were an important part of his ministry. He embraced them because it was through the foolishness of preaching and the weakness of people, including himself, that the power of God was seen. It was through weakness and foolishness that God did his best work. So what we're going to do is we look through these verses together. We're going we're to look at, at three main ingredients here. We're going to look at Paul describe his foolish method. We're going to see Paul describe his foolish message. We're going to see Paul describe his and the Corinthians' weakness, so weak people. But then, fourth, we're going to see how these three ingredients come together into a display of the power of God. And then finally, we're going to ask, what does this mean for us 2,000 years and 9,000 kilometers away? So let's start by looking at Paul's foolish method. Now, when we say method here, we're talking about the way that he shared the gospel with the Corinthians, how he did it. This aspect of his ministry is is what gets the most attention in this passage. Paul spends most of his time talking about how he communicated the gospel to them, how he shared the gospel with them. He begins in verse 17 by telling the Corinthians that when he brought them the gospel, he didn't do it in the way they expected, which was the polished, slick speech of classic rhetoric. He says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. See, words of eloquent wisdom, that sums up this public, polished public speaking that the Corinthians loved. And Paul says, no, I didn't come speak the gospel to you in that way. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And we just need to know how shocking this was. The Corinthians expected this. It's, it's, it's just what you did. You wanted to come to town? You wanted an audience? You, you gave them what they expected. You spoke to them in the way they expected you to speak to them. In many ways, their whole culture was built on this whole model of persuasive speech. But instead of trying to persuade them with what they expected, Paul simply Preach the gospel. This phrase, preach the gospel, in verse 17, it comes from a, just one word in the original language. And, and what the word describes is, is a good news messenger who's announcing good news. And so what we need to understand, this good news preaching, just a good news messenger, is a completely different ball of wax than the words of eloquent wisdom. Because, like we've said, we know how these polished public speakers thought. We've got tons of their writings. We know that for them, their actual message was the most flexible part of their whole presentation. For the, for the polished public speakers of Paul's day, 
it started, their starting point was actually the results that they were after. They wanted a certain result. They wanted to get people to believe a certain thing or embrace a certain perspective or be moved to make a certain decision. So you start with your goal. What do we want? And then they would try to understand their crowd. How best could this group of people be persuaded? What do we know about them and how can we best sway this group? Only then would the public speaker draw on his storehouse of technique that he'd been trained and taught in to try to use the best phrases, the best language, the best words to overwhelm his audience with his speech to try to persuade them, to try to make his ideas seem irresistible to them, that they would just have to believe what he's saying And then he gets what he's after. He pushes them, he sways them, he gets them to land where he wants them to land. This was the art of persuasion. You can see how totally different that is from the mindset of a messenger, a good news messenger who just shows up and says, this happened. Good news, this happened. It's totally different. And so already in verse 17, we can see that When Paul brought the gospel to the Corinthians, he didn't do it in the way they expected. He simply brought them a good news message. Paul did not see himself as a persuader. That's that's what we need to see here. He was not practiced in the art of persuasion. He was just a simple announcer of good news. And verse 18 makes this picture even clearer. Paul, so... In many of your English Bibles, verse 18 is going to have like a new heading above it, okay? And, and it was like I know in the ESV, it says, Christ, the wisdom and power of God. Helpful, but also not helpful, because there's actually quite a connection between verse 17 and 18, okay? So in, in verse 18, Paul describes his preaching as the word of the cross. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, Okay, lock into that phrase, super important. Verse 17 said he did not share the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom. Instead, verse 18, he spoke the word of the cross. Do you note the contrast there between two different types of words? There's the words of eloquent wisdom and there is the word of the cross. This is why the ESV is really important here because there's many other translations that they'll take the word word in verse 17 and translate it a different way and the word word in verse 18, they'll translate it a different way and we miss that. Paul's making a, a, a parallel contrast here. He's deliberately contrasting words of eloquent wisdom with the word of the cross. So here, here's, what, here's, what we, here's what this means. Verse 18 is not just saying that the cross was folly to those who are perishing. That's not what it says. It doesn't say, for the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Rather, it was his very preaching of the cross that was folly. It was the word of the cross in contrast to the word of eloquent wisdom that they were expecting. And this difference comes out in in even clearer uh, vision down in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now we need to again have a very brief 
uh, discussion about words here because this all really matters. The word preach that Paul uses down here in verse 21 is a different word in the original language from the word he used up in verse 17. It's a different word. The word down in verse 21 here has, comes from the background of, of, of heraldry. You might remember heralds from stories or movies about medieval times. You know, he's like the guy with the trumpet who comes into the city square and says, hear ye, hear ye, the king has proclaimed a feast on such and such a day, right? He, he comes in and he proclaims a message from the king. It's actually pretty similar to the kind of thing that went on in Paul's day. Heralds were hired by important people to go and share and proclaim their message. Proclaiming was at the heart of what a herald did. Now, here's what's important. Heralds were not men of eloquent speech. A herald was not hired to convince or persuade anybody of anything. Heralds were often not very important people. It was kind of like, you know, the minimum wage job of the day. A herald didn't try to argue with people for, you know, how probable his message was and how good it would be for them to listen. That wasn't his job. A herald certainly wasn't allowed to tinker with the message. He wasn't allowed to to try to persuade people by using different techniques. Whether people believed him or not wasn't his business. It wasn't his job to be concerned about that. His job was simply to proclaim a message that had been delivered to him. That's it. The herald had one job, faithfully proclaim the message that had been entrusted to you. So we can see again, this idea of heralding is completely different from the polished persuasion that the Corinthians were used to. It was so different that Paul's simple preaching, just just heralding a message, this happened, this is how you need to respond, that was just so silly, it just seemed downright foolish. And that's actually what Paul says in verse 21. Now, here's where we need again to, to pay attention to words and translations, and this is important, okay? In the ESV, verse 21 says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. But if, if you look in, in your Bible, you see that above the word preach, you might have like a little number or something. And then if you go down to the bottom of the page, it'll say, or the folly of preaching. If you have a King James Bible, that's actually how the King James translates it. And good, good for the King James, because that's actually what the Greek words are saying in a straightforward way. That's actually just word for word. That's, so the King James translates it. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. So if that's true, why does the ESV say the folly of what we preach? Well, here's the thing. Um, if, if, if you were to go home this summer, let's say one of the new guys was preaching, and someone was to say to you, hey, how was the preaching this morning? Well, what, what would you be thinking about? You'd probably be thinking about what they said, but you'd also be thinking about how they did, how they said it, right? So when Paul says the preaching, he's talking about both of those things. He's talking about what we preach, that the gospel was foolish. And we're going to talk about that in a minute here. But he's just as much talking about the foolishness of 
preaching, just heralding, proclaiming a message, just that that in and of itself was really foolish to the Corinthians. Really, really foolish. And it was through the foolishness of simply proclaiming a message to a group of people who were expecting something way fancier that God sent Paul to minister. This foolishness gets explained even further in verse 22. Paul unpacks the foolishness of preaching even further in verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach, we herald, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. I misunderstood this verse for years. You read it out of context, you know, you read it on a bumper sticker or something, and you think that what Paul's saying is that Jews had this unnatural craving for signs and Gentiles had this unnatural craving for wisdom. But just think about this, okay? We've, we've spent some time in the Gospels recently in Matthew and stuff. When do we see Jews demanding signs? When do Jews demand signs from Jesus or from the apostles? It's when they have a new message to proclaim. It's when, they have, it's when they're sharing a new message. And the Jews want to know, should I believe this or not? I'm not sure if I should believe you. I need to be convinced. I need to be persuaded. Show me a sign. Signs were how the Jews expected to be convinced or persuaded to believe something. Similarly, if you were one of the Greeks or one of the Gentiles, how, how did you convince a Greek or a Gentile to believe your message? You gave them wisdom, which was a short form for this wise, sophisticated speech. You would persuade them with your wisdom, and then they go, oh, okay, yeah, I can buy that. I can believe that. Signs and wisdom are what the Jews and the Greeks found convincing. It's what you had to give them if you wanted them to believe you. So you see now the, fall, the folly of preaching, right? Paul says, I'm not going to give it to them. That's what they expect. That's what they're demanding to be convinced. No, I'm just going to herald, proclaim, Christ crucified. Same word for preach here. Proclaim, herald, the cross of Christ. This was humbling for Paul. You know, this is like you going to like a, a let's, say, let's say you go to one of the big film festivals where everyone's, all these film critics are gathering around to watch the latest movies. And, and you say, I have an entry and, uh, and then you just sort of stand up on a box and just tell them something, tell them a good story. What in the world, man? Like, did you see what's on the sign? Like, this is a film festival. Like, you don't just stand there and talk at us, right? Like, it's, it's almost that stark of a contrast, what Paul's doing. It was also really humbling to the people. See, the people in the ancient world, the people in Corinth, they loved being critics and connoisseurs of this fine public speaking. They loved being the judge, deciding, hmm, will I let myself be persuaded by this or not? Does this, does this appeal to me or not? 
Dwayne Litfin, whose book really helped me this summer with this passage. He writes, The occasion of listening to a speaker thus provided audiences not only amusement and entertainment, but also immense ego satisfaction. They loved it. It was their entertainment, it was their amusement, and it stroked their egos. And Paul refused to give it to them. Verse 2, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now we can see, okay, lofty speech or wisdom is what they wanted, what they expected. No, no. Verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom like they expected, like they craved. So here's what we need to see here. Paul's whole ministry was built on this foolish method called preaching, proclaiming, just being a herald saying, this happened, thus saith the Lord, this is how you need to respond. This was humbling for him. It was humbling for his audiences. If you want to know a little bit more about what this actually looked like, you can read through the book of Acts. You can see Paul preach in different settings to the Jews. He started from scripture to the, to the Gentiles. He starts from creation. But in both settings, what you see is Paul not using fancy words to try to persuade people, but he just says, this happened. God did this. God did this. God said this. Here's how you need to respond. Whatever environment he was in, he was a simple herald. And he called people to get down off their high horses and submit to the message, not because it tickled their ears, but just because it was true. Okay, the foolish method. Now, and we'll, we'll, we'll not spend as much time on this because we're more familiar with this. We're talking about Paul's foolish message. So not only was the method just preaching, just crazy, but what he had to say was incredibly foolish. The gospel itself was very foolish. Uh, verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. The message, was, yeah, how he preached was foolish, but also the very, the very cross itself, it also was foolishness. Verse 18, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Both the preaching, but also what he talked about was just Bonkers to the people in the ancient world. We know the gospel was foolish to the Jewish people of Paul's day. The Jewish people were expecting a political leader, not a homeless man from the boonies who was hated by all of their leaders and died under God's curse. They were looking for a king with a sword in his hands, not nails in his wrists. They were looking for salvation through their Jewishness and law-keeping. They were not looking for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in a humble nobody from nowhere. It was a tough sell. It was a really tough sell. And we know how it went. From city to city to city, as Paul preached the gospel, the Jewish people tripped over the stumbling block of Christ. And Paul got the same reaction that Jesus himself got, right? They tried to kill Jesus. They tried to kill the people who talk about Jesus. Again and again and again. So the gospel was just foolishness to the Jewish people. We also need to remember just how foolish it was to the Greeks and the Romans. 
The idea of a God becoming a man was totally backwards to them. They, they thought that our goal was to try to get out of these bodies, this physical world, and into that pure spiritual realm. And the fact that a God would come backwards was just nuts to them. But the cross was, was, was way too far for them. See, crucifixion, dying on a cross, wasn't something you're even supposed to talk about in polite society. Right? You think about that song we sang this morning, Oh, the Wonderful Cross. You could literally, like, that's like singing a, a, a happy song about an electric chair. But actually worse. The cross was worse than the electric chair, worse than the guillotine, worse than being hung by your neck. It was the most awful, degrading, and literally one of the Romans said, like, let even the, the, the word cross be removed from the mouths of Roman people. The cross was a slave's death. The cross was a way for the empire to crush someone and show the world that they were garbage. Literally Bodies cut down from crosses were often just thrown in the ditch for the animals to eat. They were less than human yesterday's trash. And the idea that Christians were worshiping a crucified king, we, we, we probably couldn't invent anything more ridiculous to them. Not to mention the resurrection. Okay? So not only did, did he leave the pure spiritual realm of heaven and come to take a body. But then after he died in the most terrible way imaginable, he took up his body again and decided to keep it forever. Just craziness. So the gospel message, deeply offensive, deeply foolish to Jews and Gentiles. And you'd think, you know, if Paul had been trained some of the places that people get trained these days, you think, man, you know, your message is so hard to swallow, Paul. You'd better dress it up in as good of a way as you can. And he goes, no, foolish message, and I'm going to just, just proclaim it. This happened, you need to believe it, because God said so. Finally, finally, you know, you, we're going to talk about weak people here. You'd, you'd think, okay, okay, Paul, okay, so you got a foolish message, and for some reason you're committed to just preaching it, I don't know why. At least, at least pick some all-stars for your team, Paul. At least, you know, pick some guys to preach who, like, you know, look something like what the people expect. See, they expected their public speakers to be strong and confident and look good and carry themselves well. At least, you know, do what, like, you know, like what a lot of modern evangelism does is it it finds, like, some celebrities who sort of believe Jesus and it gets them to say nice things about Jesus because maybe people will like Jesus if some famous guy also likes Jesus and... No, what's, what's Paul say? Well, first of all, he starts with Corinthians, verse 26 of chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. The calling, let's talk about when God called them to himself, when they were saved. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Thanks, thanks, Paul. Uh, not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And then he goes on in verse 27 and 28 to suggest many of them were seen by the outside world as foolish, weak, low, despised. Okay, So the Corinthian church wasn't full of the most important people in the city. I've often heard like, some people advertise their churches like, we're full of young professionals and stuff like that. Not the Corinthian church. It did not attract crowds of influencers and, and, and movers and shakers. If you walked into the Corinthian church, you would have seen mostly unimportant people, a lot of slaves, a lot of people that society didn't really care about. 
weren't very smart, weren't very powerful. And this applied to Paul himself. Chapter 2, when he came to town, he did not come with a slick, professional, fancy press kit, you know, with glam shots and a studio that projected strength and this awesome public persona. Verse 2 of, sorry, verse 3 of chapter 2. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Again, the opposite of what they wanted out of their public speakers. You ever see someone, have you ever seen someone get up to speak in front of people and they're so nervous that they're literally shaking and you just like feel so bad for them? That was Paul. So if that's ever been you, you're in good company. And this is not what the Corinthians wanted. We could talk a bit about why Paul was scared. You can see some in Acts 18, 9. He'd just been run out of four out of the last five cities he was in. He was scared. God had to come in a vision and say, don't leave Corinth. I'm with you. Weak, scared, shaking Paul. So that's what Paul brings to Corinth. Foolish method of just preaching. Foolish message. Hard to believe gospel. And he himself was weak and shaking. And the Corinthian church was full of unimportant people. That's how the world saw things. The world thought that preaching was dumb, the gospel was stupid, and the Christians were embarrassing. What did God think about these things? More importantly, what does God do with these ingredients? And here's where everything changes. Everything in this passage changes when we see things from God's perspective. Because from God's perspective, what the world sees as foolish is wise. What the world sees as weak is strong. Let's go back to verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. It not just contains the power of God, it is the power of God. The preaching of the gospel is God's power to those who are being saved. It's not foolishness to those who are being saved. It is the power of God because God has chosen to save people that way through the preaching of the gospel. And he goes on to unpack this in verses 19 to 21. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. In other words, all the world's fancy highfalutin stuff, I'm just going to knock it all over. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish? the wisdom of the world. You're a little bit of an echo of like Psalm 2 here, right? Where God just looks down at the powerful people of the world and he laughs at them. They think they're all something and just God just laughs. He's made them foolish. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Hundreds of years of Greek wisdom and philosophy and eloquence hadn't brought them any closer to God. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. God takes pleasure. It pleases God. God loves saving people through the foolishness of preaching. 
Yes, the preached gospel of a crucified Messiah was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But, verse 24, to those who are called, called by God, right? This is talking about God's call. When, when, he, when he says to a soul, come alive, come to me. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, not a stumbling block, but the power of God. And Christ, not foolishness, but the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. See, what makes the difference between Christ's foolishness and Christ's wisdom? It's the supernatural call of God. And when Paul preached, he didn't know who in his audience was going to be called or not. He didn't know who was going to think it was foolishness and who was going to see it as powerful. So he preached and he trusted God to call those. And when God calls someone, what once seemed weak and foolish is seen as wise and strong. This was true even for the Corinthians. Even they themselves. Verse 27. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. <laughs> That's you guys, right? That's what he's, ta- ta- he's talking to them, about them. God chose... What is weak in the world? You guys, God chose you, weak people, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised, you guys, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Why? What's his goal here? So that no human being, no man, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, You are in Christ Jesus. Why are you in Christ Jesus this morning? Because of him who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, that's the goal here. That's the end game. God delights to save people using weak people, using the foolishness of preaching because it brings him glory. It makes it so obvious that it's God and God alone who, who does the saving. Not us and our smart techniques and our slick words. See, if God chose to save people through slick words, through human persuasion, through fancy public speaking that entertains and delights, then you could always just say, well, was that God who saved or or were people just gathering around a good show? But God has chosen to save through ways and through people that look really stupid to the world so that when someone comes to believe the gospel, they can say, yeah, the only reason I believe is that God called me. God saved me. And we boast not in ourselves nor in the wise and strong person, but in the Lord. This was the secret to Paul's ministry. This is at the key of his whole philosophy of ministry. Paul was so determined that God alone get the glory that he deliberately rejected all of that Corinthian wisdom garbage. He deliberately rejected any attempt to convince people to believe the gospel by tickling their ears. He wanted the Corinthians to know that God's power, not Paul's power, had saved them. Isn't that how this whole section gets opened up? Verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. See, if Paul persuades the Corinthians with his own words, then no one sees the power of the cross. 
Maybe people will join the church just because they like Paul. So instead, Paul proclaims the gospel like a fool in his weakness so that people come because God drew them. God persuaded them. God convinced them. God saved them through the power of the cross. That's the point again in chapter 2, verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Je- Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he talks about being with him in weakness, fear, and much trembling. And, and then what's the goal here? What's the goal here? Verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I remember someone years ago saying, what you win someone with, you win someone to. Here's what that means. If you convince people to follow Jesus because you threw a good party, then you haven't really convinced people to follow Jesus. You've just convinced people that parties are fun. And sure, they'll follow Jesus if they get a good party. If you convince people, Paul's saying here, to come and believe in Jesus because of your persuasive speech, their faith doesn't rest in Jesus. Their faith rests in your persuasive speech. So how do you get people to not trust in man, to not have faith in you, but to just have their faith be in the power of God? You show up in weakness and you preach a foolish gospel in a foolish way. And then people's faith rests not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That was at the heart of Paul's ministry. So that's Paul's ministry. What about you and what about me? What happens when we take these truths and we pack them up and we take a trip from Corinth to Nippon? There's a lot we could say here. I worked really hard to trim this down. I'm going to make some brief comments here to three groups of people. First, I'm going to talk to future missionaries. I'm going to talk to future pastors. And finally, I'm going to just briefly talk to all of us as a church. First, future missionaries. There are a number of you in this church who are headed for missions. Some of you know it. Some of you don't know it yet. And I look forward to the process of you discovering that that's where God's pulling you. But for anyone who's just a little bit familiar with the world of modern missions these these days, you'll recognize that Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians is totally different from the training that many missionaries are given today. If Paul had been trained the way that many missionaries are trained today, you know what he would have been told? Paul, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, so you better give it to them. How else are you going to convince people to follow Jesus if you don't do that for them? See, much of modern mission method is based on giving people what they expect and what they want and shaving all the rough edges off the gospel to make it as easy and natural for people to believe as possible. And it might work on the outside for a time, but how many converts have been made who look like Christians on the outside for a time, but really they've simply placed their faith in the power of men instead of the power of God. Missionaries in this room, future missionaries in this room, reject the wisdom of the world, embrace the powerful foolishness of just being a herald of the gospel. 
Learn from Paul. Paul adapted himself like we've seen. He talks about it in 1 Corinthians 9. We see it in Acts, different audiences. He adapted what he said so that those different people could understand what he was saying. But in each of those different settings, he never stopped from just being a simple herald. And in fact, Paul adapts in different environments so that his audience can better understand the offensiveness of the gospel. See, we sometimes think we need to adapt to make the gospel less offensive. Look what Paul does in Acts 17. He, he helps those Greek people see how the gospel confronts their worldview at every point. He adapts to be offensive so that they might grasp the scandal of the cross so that their faith might not rest in the, wis- in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And he left the work of persuasion up to the Holy Spirit. It wasn't his job. That was God's job. Second, briefly to future pastors in this room, you've heard, the rest of you have heard some of them preach this summer. I'm looking forward to this sad but happy joy of sending some of them away in the years ahead. Future pastors, don't be embarrassed by the folly of preaching. This passage, the focus is on evangelism, but the same words for preaching that Paul uses here, he uses in 2 Timothy to talk about Timothy's ongoing work as a pastor. The preacher, like a missionary, is a herald, a simple herald, nothing nothing more when it comes to preaching. We don't get to tinker with our message, and we don't get to tinker with our methods to try to get a result. We proclaim and the results are God's business. Every few years, a new fad pops up in the preaching landscape that tries to convince pastors that traditional preaching doesn't work with people these days, so we need to use this new method if you want to reach people. And instead of preaching the word, pastors think that they need to deliver TED Talks or have conversations or tell stories or do stand-up comedy or whatever the fad of the day is because preaching doesn't work with people these days anymore. Here's the thing. Our passage today cuts through all of that to remind us that we don't preach because it works. Preaching has never worked. That's not why we do it. We do it because God delights to work through preaching and he's told us to do that. So that's what we do, because we're just heralds of the king. We work hard to make sure people understand, but what they do with that message is between them and God. Our job as preachers is not to produce a result, but simply to be faithful to the one who sent us. Finally, for all of us, and you can see in your outline there's two two brief comments we're going to make here. First, we're going to talk about foolishly sharing the gospel. I wonder if one of the reasons that we don't share the gospel with more people is that we feel stupid doing it. The message feels foolish, right? Like, you know, think of especially someone who's kind of like powerful and self-assured and has everything in this world. And we just need to tell them, yeah, actually, you need to believe that a Jewish man died for you 2,000 years ago. Like, it can feel silly, We don't like those smug, like, you know, keep your church business to yourself kind of comments we get. And we don't like feeling scared. We don't like that quaver in our throats as we go to tell someone something and we kind of start feeling nervous and flustered and we think, oh, I should just stop it. But what if fear in proclaiming the gospel is normal? 
Paul experienced it. That didn't stop God from building a church in Corinth. What if we knew it's not our job to convince anybody? Isn't that what today's passage has shown us? That's God's job. What if, though many people will find it silly, your shaky sharing of the gospel is exactly the channel that God wants to use to save people because then he gets the glory and not you. The gospel's not popular these days. It's never been popular, but the power of God, it, it is the power of God for those who believe. What might our lives look like if we believed that? Finally, we're going to talk about weekly serving one another and not W-E-E-K like days of the week, but W-E-A-K like we're weak. What about our ministry to each other in the body of Christ? What if we rejected this idea that if you feel weak and scared, then you must not be cut out for something and you don't have to do it? Isn't that sort of the message? You know, some of you have taken those spiritual gifts assessments and isn't that sort of the message in some of those spiritual gifts tests that, you know, if you're not strong in a certain area, you don't have to do it. So we say, oh, well, I'm not going to serve in that area. It's not really my gift. I'm glad Paul didn't think that way about his ministry to Corinth. Ministry to one another can feel scary. Asking someone to pray for you can feel scary. Going to visit someone in the hospital can feel uncomfortable. You might not feel very strong with hospitality. Meeting up with someone to just read the Bible with them might make your knees knock and keep you up the night before. Watching toddlers in the childcare room might scare the living daylights out of you. But what if, like Paul, we understood that our fear and our weakness It doesn't disqualify us, but actually it sets us up really well to lean on the Lord and have his power flow through us. What if weakness is the way? I've been learning that message myself a lot lately. I shared with some of you briefly back at family camp. I hope that my sabbatical would fix all of my health issues, and it didn't. But the Lord's been helping me to understand that my weakness is not a barrier to my ministry. In fact, my weakness, the weakness that I carry, even this morning in the pulpit, it's an important part of my ministry. It's good for me because it keeps my eyes on the Lord, whose power is made perfect in our weakness. It's good for you so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Weakness is the way. And very quickly here, we're heading into another fall of ministry together. Let's ask the Lord how he might use us in our weakness to serve each other and to share the gospel to make his power known. Father, I pray that you would do the work now of convincing us in our souls that this truth is true. And I'm praying, Father, that you would do the work of helping us walk in faithfulness to this truth so that you receive the glory.